The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. So welcome. Welcome to this second session of our class on the five Dharma resources. It's nice to see all of you. And um, just as a quick review, last time we talked about these five as inner wealth. And so the five are faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. And we talked about how those can uh, be a source of kind of inner, yeah, inner wealth, inner value that is something that is more stable and more reliable than the more external forms of wealth that we can gather. Not that we don't do that, but those can be taken away more easily and we don't have as much control over them. Whereas these five uh, can serve us even as things are changing externally. And then we also talked, as we will each time, we'll talk about something about the list of five and then also a study method, a way to use the suttas to support our practice. And so we talked about um, the kind of straightforward method of going through a list like instead of just taking the list of five as, okay, check, memorize these or something, um, really go through and notice, okay, how do these show up in my life? And what are some of the relationships between them? And which ones feel very natural for me and which ones not as much? You know, why, and why is this a set? You know, why does this list somehow go together? I don't think you can figure that out so easily theoretically. It's really more something to be done in the reality of our life. So I had encouraged you to look at these five. We kind of went through them in class last time, so you'd have an idea of what they were about. And to to see, you know, if these forms of wealth uh, appear in your life, and if so, how, and what do you notice about them? So I wanted to create some space at the beginning here if anybody uh, had any comments on that. Did anyone look for them? Yeah, Debbie. Hi. Hi. I had a hi everyone. I had a really good time working with this list. Um, in my group, I thought um, I thought I had boxed myself into a wall with what I I I, well, I take that that saying back. I saw what was strongest in my life, and then ha- your encouragement to look at how they appear within our life, um, how we use, we're aware of them. It really kind of threw me, um, it changed my whole thought about how I, how I thought about myself. <laughs> I guess I'm putting too much thought into self, but um, I was intrigued by how differently these lists found themselves in various parts of my life throughout the week. Okay, so it, it changed. It wasn't keep... static. It changed a lot. Well, that's good. That's good, actually. Can you give one example with such um, an intriguing intro? We're well, curious. <laughs> um, I I thought be, being seventy and um, learning a lot in my life from experience. I thought wisdom was what. I mean, I, it sounds so haughty to say. I found myself as being wise. 
because after living this, looking at these, I I found more, I'm more at the learning stage. I I have true confidence in this path. I I like living an ethical life, and I'm learning. I'm just and I'm generous, easily generous with family, friends, and giving to people who need it. I mean, I'm generous. And I'm just in the learning stage right now, just trying to understand what these lists are all about. I mean, I've only been doing this for three years, so I'm probably one of the youngest in the groups, <laughs> but I like learning and it's, I'm fantastic. So I think I'm at the learning stage. Excellent. So, thank you. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. What a wonderful engagement. Okay, Mary. Um. I had a lot of, I did a lot of inquiry about my resistance with learning. And I had a lot, a heavy load of reading lately. I had signed up for several courses and there was just a lot of really dense reading involved. And I just became aware of um, kind of sloth, the relationship for me with sloth and torpor, I, I never thought of myself as, as that being a major hindrance for me. I always feel like I don't easily fall asleep and I can kind of work through. It just hasn't occurred to me that that was an issue, but there was a lot of resistance to really taking on some of these denser, more subtle layered teachings and I just found, so there's a lot of inquiry around what was going on with that and if, and if there, what that resistance is all about. So that's how it showed up for me. Um, I started working, I was a little overwhelmed this week. I just resumed in-person hospice visitations and I found just a huge amount of sadness around that because one of the places I went to, um, the conditions were really poor. I mean, everybody was in a hospital gown, stacked two in a room with no pictures on the wall. And I had to sit in a wheelchair if I wanted to sit down to visit. And, you know, people grabbing me in the hallway and begging me for meds. And it was just really painful. So there was a lot of generosity involved in in um, my intention and my presence in working with these new people. But it also brought up um, a real layer of sadness. So again, I was sort of looking at that in terms of impermanence and wisdom and kind of my connection to aging. And it just brought up a lot of real heartfelt things. I went back a second time to see my patients this week and it was a totally different experience. It was much calmer and I was able to put some old calendar pictures on their wall, which delighted some of them. So it was a really lovely, joyous experience around generosity. So that's enough for now. Oh, that's wonderful, Mary. Thank you. And it's these lists really come alive when we see them in our life. And there isn't just one way that they look and you know, as far as not wanting to engage with subtle intellectual things, that sounds natural to me if you're very much in the heart space. And um, not that they're opposites or anything, but, you know, there's different times for different things. So 
that, that's beautiful. Thank you for your for your share. Yeah, uh, Fred, your hand is up. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, I, what I noticed uh, in the last week was how um, these different aspects are already present in my life and my activities, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like, oh, I'm I'm doing. Um, you know, I'm doing generosity or this is learning. I'm reading a book about uh, meditator's dilemma. I'm reading uh, suttas. This is learning. Um, I'm discerning to uh, making decisions in the day that's, that show wisdom, taking a long walk with my dog before the rain, um, uh, visiting. I'm a hospice volunteer also. I visit people in hospice and, and, and homes and at institutions and um you know, there's that generosity and um, yeah, a lot of the way I live my life is with CeeLo. I'm, I'm vegan. I'm, um, I don't drink or uh, do drugs. I just sort of live an ethical life in a lot of those respects too. And I'm not sort of noticing that a lot. I just sort of haven't seen it in, in that, in those ways. Great. I guess. Yeah. So I'm, no, I'm leaving beautiful. for a, I'm leaving for a long retreat next week, uh, a month in Maui, and I'll be. So I've been kind of trying to simplify this this next week and not do too much and tone down. I'm going to sit more, and maybe that's given me an opportunity to be a little more reflective about it. I might have not noticed maybe so much otherwise. I don't know. Great, that makes sense. Yeah, that is one of the simplest ways to engage with these lists is that when you just bring them to mind, suddenly you realize, oh, actually, these things are already present or and also just being aware of them strengthens them a little bit. It's kind of like the secret bonus of mindfulness is that, you know, you don't have to do a lot of work to uh, create more of these things. Um, You can actually just by seeing them, you'll start to bring them forth and integrate them. So I, I, I hope I, maybe I should ask you, Fred, did you have a sense that um, these uh, five are kind of forms of wealth? You know, they're like things, resources available to you since you saw all of them. Yeah. Well, that was a different uh, perspective that I hadn't seen it from before. So yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. It was like, um, yeah, because I, I had lunch yesterday with a friend who's kind of, <clears throat> Uh, at a different place in his life and kind of confused and, and just the contrast and where, I don't know, I'm not comparing or judging so much as just sort of like, wow, I feel really settled in what I'm doing and what I'm in my life and what's happening with me. And, um, and that did feel like a wealth. It did feel like, um, an, I don't know, a rich, a richness or something. Richness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I don't know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so um, so we'll move on then today. Yeah, last time was uh, somewhat theoretical. I'm so glad some people took it up as a practice. Um, but, you know, we needed to go through the list and talk about what each one was and so forth. And this time we're going to have a little bit more about practice. Um, but first I want to talk about the sutta readings that, that we had for today. So if we consider these five, faith, virtue, learning, generosity, or letting go, and wisdom, if we consider them as forms of inner wealth, then maybe the next question we 
that might come to mind is, is the amount that we have now kind of our allotment of these? And, you know, the answer to that is no. Like, like outer wealth, we can gather more of these. It's sort of a process of development, more like a seed growing, let's say, than like amassing something. So it's different from conventional kinds of wealth. It's more like a uh, cultivation. And so that's actually the topic for today is to look at these five as cultivation of the five resources or and also in reverse, this list as evidence of cultivation. So the first reading that you had for today starts fairly straightforwardly. You know, it names these five as ways that we grow in a noble growth, meaning uh, maturing of the mind and heart. So we can increase the level or the intensity or the availability of these five resources. And that's kind of a mark of moving along in practice. So I think that one was fairly straightforward. I just wanted you to see the direct statement. And then the second reading shows Mahanama the Sakyan talking with the Buddha. Um, actually, he's in, the, he's in the next two. And I, I believe Mahanama was a cousin of the Buddha because the, the Buddha was also of the Sakyan clan, you might recall. Um, another name for the Buddha that you hear sometimes is uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. So Shakya is the Sakya, it's the Sanskrit form, and Muni is recluse or um, mendicant. So he's the recluse from the Sakyan clan, Shakyamuni. And so um, Mahanama, from his same clan, was also was known to be a very good lay practitioner. He was a devoted follower. He uh, uh, actually did pretty serious practice despite having a, a lay life with a family and so forth. And uh, it's said that he had attained fairly early on the first stage of awakening. And he's, uh, but in this reading, this second reading, he is worried about dying in an agitated state. So those of you who do hospice work, um, maybe this comes to mind. But he he gives a very concrete example. You know, he says, I live in a crowded city and, you know, crowded Indian cities. I don't know if any of you have seen these. Um, but he says, you know, I run into stray horses and dogs and carts and people everywhere. And he worries that he's going to come around a corner and get hit by a bus effectively. And then, you know, then his mind is not going to be in a calm state. We all imagine that we're going to, we'd like to die at home with beautiful surroundings and people and our favorite music playing and lots of time and, you know, not too much pain and so forth. But I don't know, maybe you'll get hit by a cart in the street. And so he's worried about this and he has an idea as we do in this practice, you know, that we would like to die in a somewhat collected state of mind. That was actually a, that's an important part of um, understanding if you're, if you're going for rebirth, your state of mind at death matters for that, actually. So he's worried. And he says, what if I get run over by a stray chariot on a side street? I won't be mindful. And so the Buddha, um, what he chooses to do with him is, he could have said a lot of different things, but what he says is, uh, don't worry. He reassures him the presence of these inner qualities even if his mind is distracted, will support him. 
So we might infer in some way that they're going to come forth or somehow shape his response, even during a surprising encounter, like with an elephant or a wild dog or something. And so, you know, we'll also talk more next time about how these qualities can come forth as part of our responsiveness to the world. But he essentially says, you know, because you have these in your heart, don't worry, you're going to be okay. They're going to, they're going to be there for you. So another aspect of inner wealth in a sense. So then um, I want to spend a little more time on the third reading, which I know is longer and a little more complex, a little more layered also. And there's, there's initially a set of five things that starts with faith, but it's not our list. <laughs> Did you notice that? It's faith, energy, mindfulness, uh, immersion, which translates samadhi. That's how Sujato translates samadhi and wisdom. And those five are actually another official list. Those are the, um, those are the five faculties, five spiritual faculties. Um, but that's not what we were looking for. Did you find our list? In there, it's near the end. Um, it's under, in the last part, under the recollection of the deities. And um, I also put in, it's a longer sutta. I, I elided it a little bit, excerpted it a little bit. But I also put in the full recollection of the Buddha, which is the first one, just so that you could see the language that's used. Um, and then the others that are just dot, dot, dotted, which are the Dhamma, Dharma, Sangha, virtue, and generosity, uh, those each have their own distinct text also. Uh, I just didn't put it in because it would get kind of long. Um, so there are six recollections total. And the one on the deities is the last one. And that's the one that includes our list where it says, um, let me get it up here. It says, when a noble disciple, disciple recollects the faith, ethics, learning, generosity, and wisdom of both themselves and the deities, their mind is not full of greed, hate, and delusion. At that time, their mind is unswerving based on the deities. A noble disciple whose mind is unswerving finds inspiration in the meaning and the teaching and finds joy connected with the teaching. When they're joyful, rapture springs up. When the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. And when they're blissful, the mind becomes immersed in samadhi. Just stop there for now. So that's that last paragraph I was just reading. So, um, so we see that there's some cultivation of a bunch of skillful qualities of mind. So let me pause briefly to say what a, a recollection is. So these, it says you should recollect these six things. Uh, what are recollections? Um, recollection is a form of practice. It's a form of meditation, actually, that could also be called contemplation or reflection. There's a lot of words, and sometimes they're used differently. But uh, the Buddha sometimes offers recollection. It's a skillful use of thought. It's true. Thinking is not always bad for spiritual practice. So you are actually intended to reflect and recollect these five uh, that you have, and then the deities. We had a question last time about the devas. So the word is there is actually the devas. So you remember that the devas, which are the beings that have been born in the heavenly realms because of living meritorious lives and doing good practice, 
you know, you get rewarded for that in the rebirth system. And they too have these qualities. And so you can um, imagine skillfully that, first of all, you might be reborn there. And so, you know, if you have those same qualities as the devas, then that's where you're headed after death. So that's good. Uh, it's it's considered acceptable for lay people to want rebirth in heaven. Um, and also there's though he, the Buddha always likes to slip in uh, cultivation of some kind. So we have the mind uh, becoming progressively happy, tranquil, etc., joyful, and ending up in samadhi, which is a you know, deep gathering of the mind that can lead to insight, that can lead to uh, the experience that will take you out of having to be reborn. You know, that's the extra bonus is to, to, to wish for awakening, essentially. So recollections are skillful thoughts that we would deliberately bring into the mind in order to bring uplift, refreshment, ease, and various other good qualities such as these ones. So um, we can also consider that the way this teaching is phrased, where it says, okay, you recollect these qualities, and you don't just sit there and kind of stop with that. It said, oh, the mind then becomes um, inspired and then joyful, and then the body gets tranquil, and then there's bliss, and then there's concentration. And so um, we have a way of knowing if we're doing the practice in an onward leading way. We're not just sitting there thinking forever and ever. There's supposed to be some kind of a progression in the mind and the body. Um, so we can check, you know, do the mind and the body calm down, become happy? Does the mind gather itself into some kind of concentration? That would be a sign that uh, doing the recollection is in fact functioning as an onward leading practice. And I like the way this sutta words the practice because it's certainly at least partly intended to be a cushion practice, you know, something we do in sitting meditation. That's where we can become immersed in samadhi. Uh, but then the last line throws a little loop in and says that it can be done while walking, standing, sitting, lying down, while working, and while at home with your children. How about that? So this is something that we can clearly do in daily life. Also, it's aimed at lay people. And this teaching is spoken to Mahanama, who was a lay person. And so he, he says, yes, I think the implication is that, yes, we would do this on the cushion. But why not think about it while you're folding the laundry? <laughs> you know, you can yeah. imagine these good qualities. And we, um, you know, sometimes people have the idea in the West that we shouldn't think about our own good qualities. That's selfish, that's egotistical, it's probably a hindrance to practice. And of course, it would be if we started, you know, elevating ourselves and saying how much better we were than everybody else and all of this, but that wouldn't really be going in the direction that the sutta says, right, where we get joyful and then calm and then gathered. Uh, if you're just extolling yourself, it wouldn't be going in that direction it's actually considered very skillful to recollect our good qualities. Um, it, it gives confidence. It helps us bring um, a sense of goodness in our life, a sense of settledness, uh, a clear meaning or purpose, if that's of interest to us. So um, this is one way that we can strengthen these qualities is actually by thinking about them and by recollecting them, by remembering that they resonate with other beings that have these qualities too. 
it doesn't say this explicitly in the sutta, in this sutta, but other suttas say when you have certain qualities, you will naturally be attracted to other beings who have those qualities. And that's true in the good sense. You know, if we're virtuous, we're more likely to meet virtuous people. If we're generous, we're more likely to meet generous people. It just works that way. And similarly, if we're very angry, we'll probably meet other angry people. <laughs> you know, that that's how it works too. So what we gather in our mind will gather around us also. Not a hundred percent. I know there's always that irritating family member that we have, no matter how good we are, things like that. Um, but uh, generally speaking, let's say the Buddha says there are these energies that, that gather. So, um, <clears throat> you know, what happens when one actually does this? You know, what if you actually did this practice? There's, you know, there's kind of a, a shift. We, we start with the reflection in the mind. So it is a thought. It's a thought process. But then um, as it penetrates into our system, it sort of goes below the level of the cognitive mind into more of an energetic feeling. And we can see that because we get more and more subtle qualities named in the sutta. But I, you know, I want to, I want to just talk about this in more everyday terms, not just a, a list from the sutta. Um, Many meditators find this on their own, even with basic breath meditation instructions, for example. You know, we're, we're told to sit down and put our attention on the breath coming in and going out. And we may start out feeling like the breath is the air going in and out of the lungs. And we feel that as an anatomical process. And that's fine. That's true enough. But if we stay with it, if you've meditated for a little while, you may notice that there's... Um, it sort of comes down more to something like a rhythm. You know, we're not really thinking about air molecules and the lungs in the chest as an organ. It becomes more like this rhythm of the breath coming in, going out. And then maybe we start to feel more subtle sensations through the body. We feel some tingling or we notice that the breath seems to go down into our belly area and maybe even our legs, but that's not where our lungs are. So obviously we've tuned into something else besides just the physical air we get to you know maybe we then find like knots in the body we start realizing we have some tightness and it's, it doesn't really feel like a muscle but there's some knot in our shoulder um, or we find um, you know smooth places like places where there's a feeling of like refreshment or ease or something in the body all just from breathing this is a more subtle layer of the body the body doesn't have just one layer, a way of experiencing. So then once we find that in meditation, once we find that, say, through the breath, then we might be able to experience that in daily life also. You know, it becomes incorporated into how we walk around. We can notice um, when we're standing in the grocery line, we notice if we're impatient, we notice that as an energetic feeling in the body, like a leaning forward or a tightness in our belly. And, or something, you know, Vipassana teachers always point people to this so they can learn about their experience. And again, once you've tapped into it in the cushion, then you can start to use it in your daily life. So I would say it's the same with these qualities. You know, they take on an energetic dimension. If we reflect on them and maybe sit with them and go through this calming process, we'll start to experience these five, not just as ideas or even as like 
things that make us feel happy when we reflect on them, but actual energetic sensations. What's the sensation of faith? What's the sensation of letting go? Um, they take on an energetic dimension that's that can also then become woven into our everyday experience so that we could just call it to mind while we're emptying a dishwasher or whatever. Um, so we, you know, we can know that this deeper incorporation is being pointed to in the suttas we read because Mahanama was told that these five qualities would support him even when he was in a state of shock, such as dying. Um, I'm going back to the second reading now. So we see that, um, you know, in suttas where these five are listed as, we also see this in, in the suttas where these five are listed as qualities that can support a better rebirth. I didn't assign those, but they were listed at the end. There's a couple of suttas in the Majjhima where um, these, this list of five appears again as related to what kind of rebirth we're going to take. So these five, I would say, get embedded into the body, the heart, the mind in a way that's beneficial maybe like the way vitamins or nourishment get absorbed into the body, but here we're including the mind also, if that makes sense. So this idea of cultivating these five of faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom uh, is another aspect of why I call them Dharma resources. We can build them up like nutrition or health in our mind-body system. So they're a resource that's there for us. So what I thought we would do then, since this is focused more on this cultivation, is that we'll, we'll do a guided meditation and we'll have a chance to feel into them. And then afterwards, we'll, um, we'll talk about it and you can ask questions about what I just said in this teaching or also anything that came up in the meditation. So why don't we settle in for sitting? Just allow yourself to find the spot where you're going to be for the next however long this ends up being. And just somewhere where you'll be comfortable. It's comfortable to do so. You can close your eyes. I'm going to point toward these five in some way. Maybe not in order. And maybe not by name. While we're sitting. And, you know, you'll just see what you sense in an inner way. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. But let's see if we can go below the level of cognitive thinking. So sitting with the eyes closed. Maybe just starting by feeling the body in the sitting posture just in a general way, or if you're lying down, that's fine too. Maybe feeling the general shape or stance of the body right now. Feeling the contact where you're being supported, so your seat against the chair or the cushion. the bed. And just allowing yourself to be supported. Letting go into the seat. 
not needing to hold yourself up willfully. Feeling the stability of where you're sitting. It's support. And rising up from that stable base is the body, spine in the middle. Feeling a sense of uprightness. So that the posture has some nobility to it. Perhaps we can invite into the mind or the heart a sense of willingness or openness just to see what will come about. The phrase used in the Zen tradition is... uh, not knowing is most intimate. So somehow just being with this as it is without inserting any ideas. And maybe connecting in the heart with a sense of our inspiration or interest practicing. Maybe that's felt as something clear. Maybe it's felt as a longing. Or as a sense of calling of some kind. You can see how it is for you. So to match the uprightness of the body, we bring a straightforwardness of mind. Just being mindful in this moment. Connecting in with the sensations of breathing. Give the mind a place to settle.
and to the degree that we can, releasing certain distractions that may be in the mind, such as wanting, wanting something, wanting something to happen, wanting something to stop happening, Sensing the energy level of the mind and releasing any dullness, if that's present. We're seeing if we can gently breathe through restlessness to calm the mind, finding a balance of the energy. And if there's any uncertainty, just allowing that to be there without letting it take root in the mind. There's no way to do this meditation wrong. There's no way to breathe incorrectly. Fine. We're just resting for a few minutes with a simple connection to the breath as a whole body process. Don't need to zero in on any part, just let it be, be in the body.
As we continue to sit quietly, allowing into the mind the understanding of the ever-changing sensations of the breath in the body, really opening to the flux of the in-and-out breath and all the little kaleidoscopic sensations as the breath moves in and out of the body. Inviting ease and simplicity with that ever-changing experience. Including also the heart and the mind. Noticing that the thoughts and the emotions and other movements of mind are also changing. We can breathe through those other things. We don't need to make anything happen. We can be present and honest with all that's there.
Now connecting in to the cognitive mind, which is still present. Perhaps bringing the understanding that we have in the quality of willingness and openness, not knowing the quality of faith. The uprightness in the body and the straightforwardness of mind, the willingness to see clearly has to do with virtue. Being willing to let go of distractions, energetic imbalances, uncertainty, quality of letting go. giving ourselves our best effort of generosity. And the wisdom of impermanence, of inconstancy. Knowing that that quality can lead to liberation when we deeply understand impermanence. Part of the definition of learning is that we have penetrated well by view the teachings. So knowing the knowing of these qualities in meditative form. Sensing how each one has an energetic feeling in the body. Faith, virtue, giving or letting go, wisdom, and learning. Have we touched each of those? Oh, I'm curious then. This is a chance for you to share or ask. How was the 
sitting, could you feel each of these in your own way? And if you had any questions on the talk about cultivation and the use of recollections. Yeah, Rajesh. Hi. Um, Hi. Just wanted to introduce myself. I live in San Diego. <laughs> um, so actually, I want, I have a question about the reading where he talks about joy, rapture, tranquility. And and the way it is presented, it almost seems to be a sequential series of events. Um, but I'm wondering if that is really true. Uh, in other words, can you feel tranquility without feeling joy, as an example, and rapture? And just kind of, so are they truly uh, sequential or is it just a way of presenting it because you have to be sequential? That's a great question, Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, when we string words together, there has to be some order to them. And so, um, you know, would we have exactly the feeling first of inspiration and then joy and then rapture and then tranquility in the body and so forth? Um, in my experience, they, there's, I think I said this last time about this list actually is that they're, the order of things is not arbitrary and so it does it does sort of go in a sequence but we don't need to be kind of blindly um, loyal to the exact sequence you know um, we might get uh, the bodily tranquility coming right away with the uh, faith and inspiration in the first step that might already be the beginning of it but it doesn't come to the fore until after we've had some degree of, um, I guess it uses joy and rapture. These are somewhat, uh, you'll see different translations for that set. There, that set, by the way, is a, a, a set of five. It's another group of five that's used in a bunch of places. I think there it's listed as um, uh, joy, rapture, tranquility, bliss, and concentration. Yeah, that's um, it's also sometimes uh, gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration, which are different translations of the same ones. And it appears in a bunch of lists. And um, yeah, my experience with them is that there is generally that flow because the, the gladness, or I guess what he translates as joy, um, is fairly energetic. And it starts out, you know, kind of like, wow, this is really great. And then um, it settles a little bit more. And then eventually the tranquility in the body happens when that joy settles out because the, the joy and the rapture, rapture is not very tranquil, um, but it will flow into the way you know it's spiritual rapture instead of kind of our everyday overexcitement is that it actually leads to tranquility. Um, and then there does have to be happiness for there to be concentration. I know sometimes people 
course, happiness is one of the qualities of a concentrated mind. So people say, well, wait a minute, I was trying to get concentrated so I would be happy. But it's the other way around. You have to be a little bit happy in order to be concentrated. So the, the sukha, the happiness does actually come first. So uh, I'm talking around your question a little bit, Rajesh, because I wanted to um, make this larger point. But I think the short answer is, no, you don't have to have exactly one after the other. They're, they're going to come kind of as a set, those five. But um, the one at the front is the coarsest and the concentration is the most subtle. So that's kind of the direction that they go in. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to pick out exactly which of the three kinds of happiness you have at different times. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and this set of five, I see your hand there, Alex, in a moment. Um, this set of five does have to do with mindfulness of breathing. You actually see it listed in, uh, also in suttas that relate to that. So um, it's possible for it to come about through the meditation we just did. Okay, Alex. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, this is a great class, and I, I apologize for missing the first one. Uh, but I did go back and listen to uh, the first course on Audio Dharma and uh, um, do the readings. But my so. Maybe uh, maybe it was last course you talked about these five uh, factors providing a sense of stability, and I get that. And sometimes I have difficult processing processing what I perceive as like negative energy, like in a situation maybe due to my lack of being able to interpret um, the situation or not be acclimated to the what whatever. But um, my understanding. And maybe you could verify this is that I think maybe you mentioned this that these factors help kind of give you a sense of stability in your situation and ability to process the stuff that's going on around you. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to say it. I mean, that's yet another aspect of them as resources. And maybe we could see that in that second reading with Mahanama worried about getting running into a cart or an elephant or something and um, being distraught and. Uh, the Buddha says, don't worry, you know, that's um, these five will support you in a distressing or confusing situation. And we don't need to be hit by a cart. It can be more simple than that. You know, it can be just, you know, a social situation with a lot of people or a new situation where it's hard to read uh, what's going on. So, yeah, I think you've I think you've said it very well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. OK, great. And then uh, Josh. Hi, thank you. Um, Ali from Brooklyn, New York. Um, yeah, I apologize for coming late. I was temporarily detained. Um, you raised a lot of wonderful points. I have a couple of questions, but you can ask anyone or answer anyone. Um, I, mm, the meditation... I found very um, profound, helpful, um, and your guidance was very um, helpful for me, and I was able to enter into a somewhat deep state, also using kind of breathing um, rhythms. So, but I guess I'm, I'm 
I have a couple questions. One, um, when I when you talked about reflection and thinking, that was very helpful to me because I often um, end up intellectualizing things when I think about it, and it seems to separate me from the ability to actually sense my body and and what's going on. Yes. So that's number one. And number two is um, I'm going to be teaching mindfulness uh, in a very difficult setting at Rikers Island Prison. And um, I'm wondering how I might use these um, different meditative techniques teach them or convey them in a, in, in, a, in a simple and somewhat straightforward way. So, yeah, those are my questions. I guess yeah. I have one more, which is I've heard that the, that the Buddha had a kind of pedagogy where it was about first hearing and listening to the teaching and then reflecting and then meditating. Is that apply, does that apply to the, each of these? So, sorry. Any questions? <laughs> Wonderful questions. Wonderful questions. So, first of all, um, where you talk about uh, how thinking can sometimes separate and intellectualizing, that's a real issue, especially for Westerners, where we're so conditioned into our heads. Um, so, um, what we learn as we start to explore the mind and understand how it works is that there's actually multiple different layers of thinking and modes of thinking and some of them are unhelpful and those are the ones that have gotten the bad rap over over the eras with of, of you know relating you know don't think in meditation and it doesn't have anything to do with your thinking mind just push that away and sometimes people can be afraid to use their cognitive mind at all um, whereas when it's used correctly it um, can actually it froze. with the body Am I back? I'm okay. Okay, so maybe it's Josh who is frozen at this moment. I hope that will resolve. Hmm. Well, at the very least, it will be caught on the recording. <laughs> um, so um, I think his question about intellectualizing is probably something that we can all relate to. And um, I don't encourage, I dropped off, okay. Um, I don't encourage intellectualizing in the sense of just, just thinking. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm careful in how I introduce using the thinking mind, but I, I don't think it's helpful for people to be afraid of their thinking mind or to, um, you know, not ever want to use that. You have to be integrated eventually. So the question is how to do it skillfully. And so, for example, in these recollections or in what I did in the guided meditation, you'll see that there's a way to do it. And maybe you can start to touch into that yourself. But, yeah, we don't. If you're just thinking when you're pushing, you'll know <laughs> it's not it's not leading toward tranquility, toward concentration, etc. Um, let's see. And then he asked about Rikers Island, but maybe I'll um, maybe I'll wait until he gets back that and then um what was the middle one i got distracted when we had all the um uh, freezing
Someone help me out. Okay, so much for mindfulness. You're supposed to be able to remember these things. It's not my, I'm not doing well. My job. All right, it may come back in a moment. I'm also getting to that age where <laughs> these things start to happen. Are there other questions? Okay, well, good. Um, so I wanted to uh, go on then to talk about um, the second study method in a little bit more detail. So remember I said each time we'd say something about the five resources and something about a study method. So um, this one, as you might guess, is to use a teaching contemplatively, which doesn't mean ordinary discursive thought or intellectualizing like we talked about before. You know, it's really much more about this um, particular layer of thinking that can be supportive for practice. And so um, one way that we can do this is to go to really go deep into the quality energetically. So that is now go that that is diving down below the level of the cognitive mind. But we start you know, with the thought of these five qualities. And then as we connect with those, we feel it into the body. Uh, I hope some of you were able to feel some of those as energetic feelings during the sit. And then with that, you can kind of drop away from the thinking part. You can let that part go. You don't need the word anymore. You know, when you think of, we think faith and there's a feeling in the body, whatever it feels like for you. And then you just, you meditate with that. You go into the energetic sensations. You can uh, maybe look into that uh, sutta that was the third reading about how that eventually leads to various forms of happiness and tranquility and eventually to concentration. So that would be a way to know that you're going forward. So you want to drop the cognitive thinking eventually, but it can be that we can start to deeply contemplate in the body. I remembered his other question, and it's actually relevant here. And that was about the three kinds of wisdom. Um, he didn't call it that, but he said the three kind, the three levels of, he said you should think and reflect about things, and then or you should hear things, listen things, and then uh, reflect on them, and then practice, I think was how he said it. The way that's framed in the teachings is a, those are three different kinds of wisdom. So there we go. We have one of our qualities on the list. But there's the wisdom of hearing, panya, which is um, taking in through reading, through listening, um, cognitively. There's another good use of the cognitive mind, reading the suttas, for example. And we have to take that in uh, in some way. And then we need to reflect on it, though, or contemplate, as we're talking about here. And that's kind of a way of making it your own. So, you know, it's nice to hear a list of five, but then you have to somehow reflect, like, how does that show up for me? And that was a little bit what I asked you to do in daily life, but you can do it also just through contemplation or through energetic sensation. Uh, and then you get a sense, oh, okay, it's not just something I know in my mind as a checklist. It's something that makes sense to me. It, it has relevance. It has meaning in my life, in my mind-body system, in my understanding. Um, and that's all, that's still kind of cognitive because it's reflective, but it's this deeper level that's actually useful. Um, and then we might be ready to practice to actually 
go into them deeply to do the sequence that dives down into all the way into samadhi. Um, so we can really get familiar with those through uh, bhavana, bhavana mayapanya. So sutta mayapanya, chinta mayapanya is the middle one. Bhavana mayapanya, the wisdom of cultivation comes from practice. And that's the one that will eventually be liberating. But the first two can be doorways into that one. So very relevant for today's topic. And we're I'm kind of weaving through all of them in um, how we're doing it today. But uh, it's essentially the... You know, Circling around that contemplative one in the middle is what I want to talk about now. Okay, so we can um, use that sutta. Or another way, I just want to name a few different ways that we can use um, contemplation. Another one is to get the mind a little bit quiet through whatever method works for you. Breath, for example, or um, yeah, often breath is good. And when you know that your mind is somewhat quiet, you can drop in a question. You know, you can literally drop in a question like, um, should be a wise question, you know, not like, what should I have for lunch tomorrow? But, you know, um, like, uh, what feels wise in this moment? Or um, how could the body be more settled? Something like that. Some question that has meaning for you should be specific, but you're not looking for a cognitive answer. You know, you've gotten to a place that's down below the discursive mind and you don't pop back up into, oh, I could do such and such. Instead, it's you go the other way. You drop the question down into the body, like dropping a stone down into a well. It's going to hit the water and you're going to hear something coming back. So you just drop something in and then you just see what comes. Maybe nothing comes. That's okay, silence. Or maybe a word comes or maybe an image or a bodily sensation. And then it's so tempting if you're not skilled at this to pick that up with the thinking mind and run off with it. But instead, you feel it. You just let it happen in your system. And then uh, let, let it settle back into silence. The way a pebble dropped into water will cause some ripples, and then eventually the water will be still again. And you trust that that response, whenever it was, that did something in your system, and you don't need to think about it, uh, but it did something. Um, another thing that can be done... Oh, Mary, did you have a question about that one? Your description just now, um, to me, really connected with what you were saying about energetically feeling it in the body. Did you just describe that process? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah, and it was prompted by words, so that puts it in that middle realm of reflective or cognitive understanding. Uh, Pat? Just briefly, we've also mentioned concentration, and I was wondering where concentration fits into the list. I was uncertain about that. Into which list? Mm -hmm. The one that we're considering. (laughs) Oh, the the list of five. It doesn't have concentration in it, but the way concentration is coming in is in that third reading. Um, It started why that we would reflect that both the deities or the devas and ourselves have our list of five, which is faith, virtue, learning, uh, generosity, and wisdom. Those are the five. 
-hmm. And when we reflect on those, if we let them settle deeply below the cognitive mind, the mind will become concentrated. Okay, thanks. Yeah. That clears things up. Okay, great. Very good. Good question. Probably other people had it too. Um, So maybe one more method that we can use is um, that after the mind becomes somewhat settled again, it's possible to put in a resolve, uh, what's called a resolve. And that is not a question, but a, a wish in a sense. And we can say, for example, may I have an understanding of Anicca? Something like that. And it's, it's a very simple wish. It's not anything complicated like, may I figure out how to handle my neighbor's barking dog? You know, um, but it should be dharmic. <laughs> and this is, this is a method that was taught by Mahasi Sayadaw and Upandita in Burma of the last century. So this is a modern Theravada method. It's also described in the Vasudhimaga, a commentary um, from about the fifth century. So it's a method where when the mind has gotten receptive, we can ask it to open to something. And it might, it might not. And if it doesn't, don't push it, you know, wasn't the right moment, but you know, it might. And so there are these like little ways to start um, working with the mind yeah, more than just sitting with mindfulness or uh, sitting and cultivating concentration, which is a great thing to do by the way, because that's what leads to awakening. But this, there's this middle realm where we can play a little bit with the contemplation so this method kind of works, all of these methods kind of work as a resonance. That was pretty much what Mary said, um, is that, you know, you have um, some understanding of how it goes, and uh, you kind of put your mind into the, into the state by invoking these five qualities, perhaps energetically, and then um, just letting them resonate between our understanding of them and the feeling of them. And then maybe if we put in one of these resolves or wishes or questions, um, there will be a response that comes out of having these five in the mind. So I would take take it slowly, let it resonate. Don't look for results, um, but let it play out kind of mysteriously. And then, you know, if we practice with this means of contemplating a list, it will come out in daily life too. You know, it'll, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next time, but you may start to have experiences where you you see these qualities coming forth or notice them more easily because we've been cultivating them in a contemplative mode. So it brings us back to our first reading for today, where it says, Growing in five ways, a noble disciple grows by a noble growth, and one absorbs the essence and the best of this life. What five? One grows in faith, virtuous behavior, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Growing in these five ways, a noble disciple grows by a noble growth, and one absorbs the essence and the best of this life. So there's a way of cultivating beauty through these five. Are there further questions at this point? Yeah.
Yeah, Josh, you're back. I'm back. Sorry. Um, you froze, then I froze, and it was a freezing kind of thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I just was still curious about um, uh, maybe you finished your thought about the um, intellectual mode, uh, about this second question in terms of find a way to teach it and the third question about how to kind of apply that pedagogy that I described to each one of those. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did answer um, uh, the first and the third. <laughs> um, those were the one. Yeah. And I, I, they're on the recording, um, but just briefly, uh, it's probably helpful with you for others. Um, the three the pedagogy that you described is um, in the suttas. It's it's actually three different kinds of wisdom. So we have the wisdom of hearing, sutta mayapanya, the wisdom of contemplating, reflecting, uh, chinta mayapanya, and the wisdom of practice, bhavana mayapanya. And uh, they all work together. Um, only the third is ultimately liberating, but the other two really support it and can be profound also. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, they kind of, the first one isn't that important. You could just skip over it. Second one's a little bit important and let's get on to the third. It's, um, you know, it's, it's not quite like that. And in fact, you'll, you've kind of anticipated a reading that we're going to have for the, for the next session. So <laughs> um, thank you for that, Josh. Thanks. And then um, the one I didn't answer was the one about uh, Rikers Island because it was a little more specific, but um, the teaching in the prison. I, but I wanted to ask, because I had a little follow-up about that. Have you had um, training with a, a prison Dharma group of some kind? Well, um, I've taught in prison before. Um, I taught writing and peer counseling. Um, I'm in a, a mindfulness uh Teachers Training Certification Program with Tara Brock and Jack Kornfeld. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I've, I've spent a, a lot of time in, in, in monasteries in Southeast Asia and here. So, but I, I have never, I've been reaching out to different Dharma groups uh, who, who do prison work. Um, and the Zen Mountain Monastery um, said they would provide me with some of their guidelines. And I know there are a couple of others, so I'm, I'm reaching out. I, I haven't heard back from them yet. Okay, yeah. there are, um, There's a pretty big prison training program here in California, and someone may need to help me on the name of it. Um, but I... Uh, if you drop me a line through the Sati Center, I can find it later. And I think they would have, I can, I can connect you with a person. Um, a friend of mine is involved with that. So, um, yeah, please send an email through Sati Center and I'll get you connected. They might have some additional resources for you. Um, it is, uh, I have not taught in prison myself. I've taught in the psychiatric ward, which also has people who are in a quite a, quite a state um, and I also have talked with people who have done a lot of, have done a fair amount of prison work. Actually, I don't see Leslie anymore. Leslie was, yes, she is. You've been in the prison. Do you want to speak a little bit to Josh? I just would say that what was important for me was, in a sense, 
um, humbly seeking to understand the experience of the people that I was teaching and what seemed to really come across to people was a sense of my respect for and engagement in their experience and sort of the culture of their world. I would also say somewhat humorously, but genuinely, it was important that I speak in a mode and a language that related to their world. I can remember one time saying to them at the beginning of a class, I can't tell you there'll be no more shit happening in your life, but I'm going to tell you we're going to learn how to turn it into fertilizer. And people made reference back to that for the entire session, five or six weeks. They kept coming in and saying, I had some great shit. Can we talk about it? I want to work on that fertilizer or whatever. But the metaphor wasn't something I'd have used at Insight Santa Cruz. And I'm not stereotyping that setting, but after getting to know the guys a little bit, it worked perfectly for them. Very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Yeah, there's... <laughs> I want that t-shirt, Leslie, says Amber. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of resources available for you, Josh. I think you asked in just the right place. Um, I can get you some more also. I do know that um, some other friends of mine who go into the prison say that um, working with the precepts is really interesting for inmates. Um, they're, they, yeah, they connect well with that. Um, and all of this relates to our topic because, oh. of course, we have, you know, Dharma resources and these five would be of, um, of interest to folks, you know, being able to uh, have this kind of inner wealth when one maybe doesn't have so much freedom externally. Fred, your hand was up. Thank you, Kay. I think you were referring to Buddhist Pathways Prison Project. Thank you. Buddhist Pathways yeah. Prison Project. Diane Wild is a friend of mine and is involved in that. Thank you. BP3. But yeah, I think they have a nice website and some resources. I've also donated books to them, and they're very appreciative of that. Great. Uh, Rajesh, your hand was up briefly. Was that? Now it's down. Uh, yeah, I, I just had a very basic question, if you don't mind. Um, is the definition of wisdom that you use today, uh, is that consistent throughout all the teachings? Uh, because sometimes it seems to me that maybe I understood it differently in some way. And well, yeah. so, so I'm trying to understand if what you're saying today is consistent with all the teachings. Because, you know, as an example, uh, discrimination and wisdom seem to go together for me. And so if you don't mind, if you could just talk about that a little Sure. Yeah. Wisdom is a, a wonderful multifaceted quality in Buddhism that 
I think doesn't have just a single definition. You might be referring to how last time we, the, the sutta that um, defined wealth, which was our subject last time, defined wisdom as um, penetrative uh, knowledge of, of arising and passing. You know, I forget the exact language, but um, well, actually I have it here. The book. Uh, just so I'm getting it correct. What is the wealth of wisdom? Here, a noble disciple is wise. They possess the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. This is called the wealth of wisdom. So discrimination and discernment are also um, associated with wisdom. And here, it particularly tied it to seeing impermanence. And that was what we used in the meditation also. Um, but then there are other aspects, other ways we can talk about wisdom, like those three that I just, that uh, Josh referred to in the pedagogy. And so I said, yes, these are another three ways that we could define different types of wisdom. Um, in general, wisdom in Buddhism has the sense of being like understood experience. You know, it's something that has, um, come into our being as something that we would know in an experiential way. It's not quite like wisdom, like something that we um, know just because we've been with it for a long time, or it's something that we acquire by adding more and more amassing. I think I talked earlier about how uh, we don't so much amass qualities that we're developing, but we grow them like seeds. So wisdom is also grown in that way. And it becomes something that's incorporated into our being as a response that we'll be able to produce um, when we have sufficiently grown it into our being, if you will. And it does have to do with seeing clearly, seeing how things really work. So wisdom is seeing how suffering works, vulnerable truths, seeing the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. These are the two classic uh, definitions of wisdom has to do with right view. So yeah, it has to do with um, seeing in a way that is actually accurate. How does that sound? Yeah? Okay, thank you. Um, Mary? As a follow-up to that, um, when you were talking about dropping in an intention or dropping in a resolve, and you use the example May I have an understanding of a Nietzsche? I know for myself there's a subtle difference between a, an intention in which you're putting something out, but there's no real expectation versus some grasping, some really wanting. And I wonder if you could speak about that because I've had some disappointments with putting out intentions and I could see it if I put one out may I have an understanding of a Nietzsche I mean that is that's pretty major and I don't think it's something I, I don't think that's what you were talking about because um, well anyhow you get the gist of what I'm asking yeah you have to be careful you know because uh, an intention I'm going to say kind of wanting, right? Um, but even intention, which is 
the second step of the Noble Eightfold Path <laughs> is a kind of wanting. So this is, you know, skillful leaning toward things, skillful leaning toward things. And aditana, the word for the Pali word for resolve, is one of the paramis. So it's something that we have to perfect in ourselves in order to be a Buddha. Um, so it's it's always as always a matter of skill. You know, it's it's not that all desire is wrong or that all wanting or that all moving toward is automatically grasping. That's an extra layer that we would add on. And wisdom is what distinguishes whether or not we are doing that in a skillful way or not. And so um, we feel for ourselves if there's any tension around it, or is it open? If there's perfect equanimity, we could have that resolve. And if nothing came back, oh, well, it wasn't the moment, you know, and um, but yeah, this is the, the dynamic side of practice. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I know when I was going back to um, hospice after having a lot of suffering the first time, which I needed a lot of reflection on, I really had an intention to be more equanimous and to have a bit of joy. And just having that in the back of the mind without it becoming a heavy expectation that I've got to make this happen just had a different quality, like an opening in my heart that was receptive rather than pushy. That's and perfect. See, you've answered your own question in a sense. So. Maybe we would say that an intention is about the present moment and a desire is about the future, right? If you say in the present moment, may this be, and then we go on to the next moment, it's not like got to have this, got to make this in the future. I don't have it now and I got to get it. That's different. Yeah. Thank you. That makes sense. Okay, great. Wow, the time is passing quickly. Um, we're right near the end. So just, I guess I'll put in, um, once again, the Donna link, if that's of interest. And then um, we have, again, uh, a little bit of homework uh, up to you if you want to do it for next week and there will be another email with some readings so the, the practice is you know try the cushion cultivation of these energetically you know sit down and feel in your practice maybe just run through them you could have the list in front of you in case you forget but just feel like what is what does faith feel like for me energetically what about virtue can I sense that is there an uprightness like what would be the energetic quality of each of these. Um, see if you can feel that and see how it works on the cushion. Um, just to kind of practice with this mode of connecting with them through evoking them in the mind and then feeling the resonance in the body. And then there's going to be, um, you can review, maybe review the suttas uh, that we've had up to now. It's just five little excerpts. So kind of have those qualities in mind, but I'm going to send you an essay um, about uh, learning in particular, because we may have felt like we didn't focus on that one much. And also it's this one where everyone has questions. Are we allowed to use the thinking mind? How does that work? So um, it's about learning and it'll actually have something about the three kinds of wisdom that Josh pointed us towards. So um, you can see what you make of that. And each of these classes is going to be different. Uh, first one a little more broad and theoretical. This one 
quite practice oriented and then we'll talk about learning of all things so hope to see you next week have a wonderful week bye bye